Have you ever wondered why some young people choose to end their lives? Ever wondered who they are and who they left behind? Have you ever wanted to hear their stories? Would you like answers to these questions and many more? Welcome to Suicide Pages with Dr. Lulu. Her mission is to shine light on these young people, create awareness for, and educate the world on youth suicide. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Dr. Lulu and her guests. They are not a substitute for professional advice. If you are experiencing suicidal thoughts, call 1-800-273-TALK or send a text to www.crisistextline.org. Now, here's Dr. Lulu. She's an emergency room physician, she's an entrepreneur, and she's going to be discussing her life in the emergency room. Stay tuned for this episode as well as next week's episode, which will be part two of her very, very intriguing and very, very educative as well as entertaining interview. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome back to Suicide Pages with Dr. Lulu, the podcast. How is everyone doing? I'm not sure when you're going to listen to this episode, but today is Labor Day. Okay, so happy Labor Day in future, in past, I don't know, but have fun today. Just try your best to have fun. Whatever day you listen to this podcast, have fun that day. Take a minute to raise your feet up, enjoy, relaxate. Yes, I know I made that word up, but relax. Just have fun. Just take a breather, okay, because life is hard. It's hard enough just being alive and um We're here to celebrate life, believe it or not. However you see it, we are here to celebrate life. Today I have another guest. I happen to have met her on various levels in our online presences. So her name is Dr. Heather Hammerstead. She is also a physician. And you all know every time I have a doctor on on this podcast with me, it's a very special feeling because we're we're like kindred spirits. So... Dr. Heather is not any different. She is an emergency room physician. So she is my first one, I believe. I think Dr. Lynette Charity was an anesthesiologist. Dr. Christine was, uh, is, a, is a psychiatrist. But Dr. Heather is an ER physician. So she's going to come to us today from the ER perspective. And she's also an entrepreneur. She is a CEO of Holist, is a movement. Okay, I'm also a member of that movement. And they are basically they cater to lifestyle, medicine, and coaching around food and mindset, which is awesome because I just kind of confess that my eating habits have been down the drain from just working from home. It's very, very hard to not go back to the refrigerator multiple times, like the contents have changed, right? But anyway, I digress. You're going to talk to us about some personal issues that she's, and some personal experiences that she's had with suicide, but most importantly, she's gonna talk about the ER doctor's perspective. When these kids or these adults come in to the ER, what happens from the eyes of someone who is treating them? So without further ado, Dr. Heather, thank you so much for hanging out with us this morning. Thank you for writing on our pages. Thank you for sharing your morning, because believe it or not, guys, she's actually 
hurt, but she decided to take time out of the pain and be with us this morning and, and not reschedule. So this is amazing that she's doing this. So Dr. Heather, thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, uh, I'm honored to be here as a part of your movement as well. Yes. So where do you want to start? I mean, the mic is yours, the, the page is yours to write, scribble, do whatever you want to do. So let us know what you want to talk about. Where do you want to start? Well, yeah, so I'm an emergency medicine physician. So we, um, I always describe our job as we take care of the emergencies of everyone else's specialty. So we, we, know, we know everything. Um, we're the generalists of acute care. And, um, and this, is, uh, this is something that we do every day as we take care of people who, you know, have uh, emotional illnesses, uh, like an emotional injury like depression or anxiety or other mental health issues and depression and suicidal ideation is, is one of those that I talk about every single day. Mm. Um, and, um, more and more so as the years go on, you know, one portion of my trauma center, our emergency department is a quarter of our beds are, um, our beds that are full of people who are emotionally and morally injured. So, um, I, I, yeah, I just, I'm, I'm happy to be here to talk a little bit about what happens in the emergency department and what to expect to happen when you seek help, um, what we can and can't do in the emergency department and, and sort of my, my thoughts on um, what happens in that, in that way. Awesome. So do you want to share a story? Is there one that, I know there are numerous, I'm sure, but is there one that maybe kind of is more in your mind to discuss or do you want to just kind of talk generally? I'm 15 years into <laughs> practice. And so um, there are days from every, for there's days of days and days and days of stories. Um, wow. I, um, I mean, I, as I always tell people when they ask me, you know, Oh, what's the craziest thing you've ever seen in the emergency department? I always say, um, you don't want to know that. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. You don't want to know that. Um, <sighs> no one wants to hear my crazy stories. And, and in this perspective, I do think, uh, I think general is best. So. Okay. So let's do it. Mm -hmm. So when someone comes to the emergency department in acute crisis over moral injury or emotional injury, I think it's important to understand uh, for, for people what we can and can't do. Um, when we assess you in the emergency department, we care about how you're feeling and we, want to help the best that we can. But like every visit to the emergency department, there's only so much we can do. And it's really even harder uh, when someone comes emotionally injured and needs our help. Um, it's even more difficult than when someone comes with abdominal pain or chest pain that we can only do what we can do mm -hmm. because we know how, vulnerable someone feels and how difficult it is to ask for help. Um, but in our current medical system, um, we can only decide if you need to be hospitalized or if you don't. And most emergency departments don't have the um, resources to have a social worker to talk about what's actually happening um, and to get you to the next steps. And that is a very 
challenging thing from an emergency physician perspective um, because we have 40 other people there probably that we're trying to help. Um, and so sitting down and talk, talking to someone when they really need it is uh, nearly impossible um, unless you're in a very small community hospital uh, who will definitely not have a social worker to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so that is, that's a challenging part of the job. And so um, that is the decision point that someone is making when you're there. Do you need to be hospitalized or you don't? Um, and so that's something that um, I do want people to understand off the top. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned that because like you said, it is only so much that you can do. And even me as a pediatrician, as a physician, I haven't even really thought about it that way. The fact that majority of people want to go to the ER. I'm just going to go to the ER. I'm just going to go to the ER. But the truth is the ER is basically like a stepping stone. There's only, and then, you know, you're, you're very fast paced, which is why I wanted to go to the ER. I wanted to do emergency room medicine, but then I hate PALS and I hate ACLS. So that was, that was easy. <laughs> I don't want to be bothered with that. But indeed, it's such a fast paced environment. And, you know, you have to make it very quick call, very, very quickly and kind of move them out because there's only so many beds, right? And there's only so much, you know, time they can stay in there. So people who are listening to us, I'm hoping that they can hear what you're trying to say, that yes, you're going to help them, but there's only so much. And I've never thought about the fact that there's no social worker, but most people who are coming into the ER, they have multiple reasons for why they ended up for why they ended up attempting suicide, right? So it's only like 1% of it that the ER is going to do. The, the, the large majority of the work is the follow-up care and the, the support factor and other things on the outside, which, which you guys don't really have access to. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I, my statement was mostly about people who come in with suicidal ideation, not, not yeah. having attempted. Not attempted, um, okay. Yeah, because attempted, it's like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to take care of the medical issues that came from your attempt, but we are mm -hmm. also likely going to be, you know, for the vast majority of people are going to be hospitalized yes. um, because of that, which I would hope, although I'm not entirely confident that that would be an effective treatment <laughs> would be an effective treatment, the hospitalization. So, um, so yeah, so I was talking mostly about when someone comes in and they're, they're asking for help because they're having these thoughts and they don't know where else to go. You know, we are always the place where people go. We are always going to be there for you. Mm -hmm. um, we're always going to, you know, draw blood and we're always going to have a moment to be able to speak to you. Um, but not all emergency departments are going to have a social worker to take care of, to really sit down and delve into things. I'm thankful that one of the five hospitals that I work with does, and they're amazing. Um, then the, uh, those social workers are trained in like, you know, in psychiatric emergency care and they can sit with you and delve into things with you. But again, those providers are primarily trying to decide whether you need to be hospitalized or not. Um, and it's dependent on your community resources about where we can get you next um, and that is very, very different and in, in depending on where you are. You know, it's funny. You said, now, once you said that, that reminded me that I did interview Dr. Leah 
Houston. And yeah. she is an emergency or was. And yeah, emergency. Yeah. She told me, and I just remember when you said something about ideation, she talked about a case, particular case that of a little boy, I think, that had slit his neck and something. But anyway, either way, she said he stayed in the gurney in the hallway for hours because they just didn't have anywhere where they could take him to. So that just tells you the acute shortage that, and just overwhelmed almost. I don't even know what that will do to you, just emotionally having been the doctor that attended to that child or many, in your case, numerous. And, you know, just being able to go home and come back the next day and continue. How is yeah, that? I mean, yeah, so there is something about, I mean, that's getting to our own, our own emotional injury as being physicians is um, there, especially in emergency medicine, we um, have to be able to put walls around um, patient stories, because you can't walk from the child who tried to slit his neck to grandpa who's dying of an MI to, you know, to the trauma that came in from a motorcycle accident, you can't go from room to room to room and carry that with you, mm. or you would be unable to care, um, to provide the care, emotional and logistical care um, for that person whose room you just walked into, right? And so it's not yes. fair to um, the patients to be, to be carrying something from place to place. Um, nor do they so care you, what you yeah. were just doing. <laughs> yes, so for you, in your own case, just for those who are listening, who may not be ER physicians, but also just have to deal with this kind of rapid change of, of pace and level of anything, what, what do you do? Do you, just do, do you do breathing exercises outside of the room? What do you do? Um, so I, so I work, so like I said, I'm 15 years into this. And so I've, I've tried various things over the years and what has worked for me over the last five years probably is, um, is being present in the room that I'm in, Mm. um, forgetting everything else, uh, trying to make the best connection so that I can understand what's happening with the person in front of me so that when I leave, I feel like I have close that loop of that, um, of that experience, um, until I need to come back, uh, to, you know, visit results or whatever it is. Um, that way for me, I feel like I provided the best care that I can, um, emotionally and logistically, like I said, um, and can move to another room. I also, however, um, took something from, um, uh, what's her name? Anna, Purdy, maybe she's the the pose the pose TED Talk lady. <laughs> she, oh. yeah, she uh she talks about how um, power posing, like pretending to power pose. Wait, is it the one with the with the arm like that? Uh, I don't yeah. know. If there's an I predict the movement, but yeah. <laughs> Somebody said that. Um, to, uh, who was talking about the power pose? Yeah. I can't remember the name, but I think it yeah. was. I went to a. Um, uh, what's the speaking something I forget Toastmasters and mm-hmm. talked about how this TED talk lady who talked about the power pose and that just kind of sees you and they made us kind of do it for a few minutes I'm like okay <laughs> but yeah, yeah. That. wow so I so I do um before I step into every room I take you know one or two seconds to just stop and 
hold my head up like a warrior, right? I love it. I love it. <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, maybe breathe, but at least recenter myself a little bit about how I'm going to, how I, how I'm perceived when I walk in, um, because that's important. First impressions are important. First impression, right? yes. Yeah. And of course, but, I mean, ultimately speaking, I mean, you are one person. So, but over the years, the fact that you've practiced has made you close to perfect. 15 years is not a short time. So with repetition, you have become better at it and, and almost close to being able to handle it for your own sanity sake. And that's a very, very important thing. So when you walk in, you look, yeah, at least you're faking it, even if you are, even if you have to fake it, but at least you're looking as centered as possible. That is very, very, I've never thought about it that way. But yeah, when you walk in, they need to see you like you got it. Yeah, that you care and that you um, know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. I actually, the other, just a couple of nights ago, um, so I should, I should preface that I am a nocturnist, which means I only work nights in the emergency department, which means I have an entirely different population of people wow. that I care yes. for. But the other night I walked in and, and, um, and an elderly gentleman who was quite jovial and I said, you know, I'm, I always say doctor several times in my first 30 seconds because no one really believes that I'm the doctor. So I always say, you know, I'm Dr. Hammerstead. I'm going to be the doctor taking care of you today. You know, whatever, however many times I can say it. And mm -hmm. he's like, oh, do you know what you're doing? <laughs> and his wife goes, well, she looks like she knows what she's doing. And I was like, right on. <laughs> it I, works. That's right. But you know what? Is it because you look young? Or is it yeah, I look young. I'm young and I'm. You know, I, I mean, I'm not young. I'm in my 40s, but I look young and I'm blonde and small and, you know. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I know. I remember that many, many moons ago when I was a much, much younger version of me. I'm 5'5". Mm -hmm. five, five. But when I walk, he's like, wait, uh, are you the doctor? Yeah, yes. It kind of sort of says that on my white coat. But, yeah. you know, I digress. Like, yeah. looking beyond you, like someone else is going to come behind you. You know? Yeah, no, I do a lot of like, oh, that's Dr. Honey to you or <laughs> like Dr. So-and-so that is not quite so pleasant of a word <laughs> that I can't say on a podcast. I know that's so, uh, so there, but so anyway, so the, the purpose of that initial conversation is that like, I do want people to understand that we care. Um, I do want people to understand that we are, we are always task shifting from one to another. Um, it is a long process. If you are going to be admitted to the hospital, to a psychiatric hospital because of how you're feeling um, and um, how despondent you are. Uh, it is a long process. It may be six hours. It may be 24 hours. It may be longer in some places where you are in our emergency department. And um, that's a difficult thing for anyone, especially when you're emotionally injured. So I, um, it is, it's a hard thing. Um, the whole process. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Wow. That's, that's something. You know, nocturnist, that is true. You do get a different population. <laughs> it's just what it is. Yeah. yeah, my people. I call them my people. Your tribe, your real tribe, <laughs> the real one. Do you ever get children in your practice? Have you had, just because I'm a pediatrician, yeah. What is the age range or what is the, what, what are the, as far as kids go, teenagers and stuff, do you get a lot of those who are coming in suicidal and or attempted suicide or maybe even, heaven forbid, died by suicide in your practice? 
I'm thankful I haven't had anyone complete a suicide that was a child. Um, I, I have noticed a trend over the last several years of more and more children presenting with suicidal ideation, something I can't, as having young children myself, I have a five and a seven-year-old um, boys, I can't imagine uh, where those thoughts come from. It, it speaks to um, the depth and the, uh, I don't know, naturalness of where that comes from and that you can have an eight-year-old come in and say that they want to kill themselves. It's just astounding to me. Um, but it's been happening more and more. I mean, have single digit kids coming in with their parents, um, for these thoughts, um, with plans, you know, of things that they're going to do. Um, teenagers are a whole nother ball game. You know, teenagers are just, I'm so like, so gentle with the idea of discharging a, a teenager who has suicidal ideation because they're so impulsive. Yes. Um, and I have seen so many times where someone, they, I mean, and they're manipulative yes. <laughs> and they don't, they don't want to tell you anything. They are, they don't want to tell their parents anything, much less something like this. So, Hello. um, so, um, and I have seen so many times, um, these teens say that they're fine and contract for safety and leave and, and kill themselves. It's just the impulsivity. They don't understand um, what that means. They don't understand the finality of it. They still have very, very, very immature brains, regardless of how well they speak and and can, um, you know, read novels and all the things that communicate and play video games and be on their cell phone. And it's funny you said that. Well, maybe not funny per se, but it's it's good that you mentioned that because. The last time I gave a, a, a keynote address, one of the parents was actually upset with me for, for daring to mention the fact that kids five and six and seven, how dare I even insinuate that they kill themselves? Like, how is that even possible? And I was like, first of all, you're hating the messenger. But second of all, there was a study by the American Journal of Psychiatric and Adolescent Medicine or something that they found that four, five, and six-year-olds who have suicidal ideation actually understand the fact that death is final. Now, what I don't think they understand is that this particular act will lead to my death. But they do understand that if their goldfish dies, for example, or their dog dies, it's not coming back. And so I had to take a deep breath and explain it to him. I said, this is actually the situation. Like, this is actually real, that kids actually do have suicidal ideation. And of course, he's Nigerian. And I give him an example of a seven-year-old kid that had just killed himself in Abuja, Nigeria, the week before my talk. The fact that that kid actually did kill himself. So it happened. And then he kind of, I was like, oh my God. And he kind of calmed down a little bit, but I think it, it hit him somehow. He just was not happy to hear that there's such a concept, but it is. And unfortunately, that's why we're talking about it. So people become aware that it is possible. A lot of the kids that I have stories of that have killed themselves, they're all in elementary school and middle school. So they're seven to, and then of course, high school, but seven is a very common age, and then ten is one of the commonest ages, and it's just it's just not it's not it's not going away. And and you right. know for sure that 
you, you've seen it kind of play out in front of you. So how, how do you connect with the parents in a short time that you have in the ER? How are you able to, are you able to connect with the parents of these children? And are you able to get them to see the fact that this is not a cry for help as far as fakeness? You know what I mean? A lot of my parents, yeah. the kid is just, they, they don't mean it. How do you get those parents to see that they do? You know, in my opinion, most of the parents know. I mean, that's why they brought them to me. By the time by the time you make a decision to bring your child to the emergency department, that's a big decision. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they get it. And the hardest thing is when we say, um, yes, your child feels this way and we think you can take them home oh, is the hard is the hardest part, right? I mean, some of these kids have to be hospitalized, but for the most part, it's like, well, you know, they're little, their parents are still in control of their world. Mm-hmm. You know, they can take the doors off the bedrooms and they can take all the sharp objects out and make sure they don't have guns in the house and, you know, all those things they can still do. So most of those kids go home and that's harder for me. Mm. That's harder for me because they, they're just as scared when they leave as when they came in. Yes. I would be scared as a parent. My youngest is 14. My oldest is 21. I will be scared. And I love my kids and I know my kids, but if I ever had to make that trip for that reason, I would be very, very scared. So I can totally see how I would not want, I almost want to, are you sure? I mean, do I, are yeah. you sure? And then, wow. Well, you know, you touched on something that I was going to ask you next. What advice do you give them? And I live in Texas and I know you've heard, you know, what's been going on in Texas. Even yesterday, or was it two days ago, another shooting. And I am not very, I'm not very famous. Is that the word popular rather? When I say, you know, people should just remove the guns from the home. So you did mention that. So as an yeah. ER physician, can you tell the parents or the people listening what maybe two or three things that they could do in their homes since you've seen these kids and you've seen maybe the modes of attempts that they've, that they've, that they've had to come to the ER or even the plans that they've made? What, are they, what kind of advice can you give our parents, if you have any, that they can do at home to help maybe make their homes a little bit safer for the kids? Yeah. Yeah, so I I live in Idaho, so we're a gun state as well, um, much to my chagrin. <laughs> I know, because I heard um, you on the radio talking about it. I was like, I love this chica. I love it. I really love it. Yeah, yeah. So what you're inferring to is I did um, go on NPR and spoke about um, the need f- with all these mass shootings to treat guns not as a political issue but as a public health issue. Public health um, issue. Can you say that yeah. again for those at the <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the reason why I feel that way, not, not, I mean, I also, I have, I have a master's in public health, so it is in global health, but I do, um, uh, but it is a, a passion of mine, public health. And what that means is that it's a population issue. Um, and that the, you know, just like we educate people on wearing helmets or seatbelts, uh, from the emergency department, it is our duty to educate people about the safe use of guns and where and when they're appropriate. Um, And so in my state, we're never going to be able to 
you know, take people's guns away. Oh, and that's honey. not the point. Are you that's sure you're not, not in Texas? <laughs> Are you sure you're in Texas? <laughs> uh, but that's not the point. The point is um, making sure that people understand um, the place for them for, for hunting. You know, if you have guns for hunting or if you have guns for personal protection, that there's places that you can keep them safely um, so that your children or uh, your teenagers or your spouse uh, don't use them in a moment of in impulsivity or God forbid yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, because we all have those moments where we think that there's nothing around the corner and there's always something around the corner. Yes. Um, and that moment of having something that accessible to you, that is that deadly, um, especially for elderly people seems to be, um, a, um, uh, definitely the, the mode of choice for suicide. Um, so it says also that elderly people do have the highest rate of suicide. I mean, I know as a pediatrician, I talk about the, the numbers in children, but overall, the elderly- older, yeah, elderly white men are, are, and my, my personal story that I'll touch a little bit on my family is, um, is very sensitive to this topic. So I won't get into it too much, but my, uh, I do have a, an elderly family member who I was very close with who did just kill himself with a gun um, earlier this year. And it was uh, a surprise to everyone. Um, so sorry. And, so sorry. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, so guns are, they are um, lethal and ready, right? They're always They're ready. there. Oh my goodness. And there's, it's, yeah. So, um, so I, I am a big proponent of, uh, locking guns away. When it comes to your um, small children, um, they know where medicines are. They don't understand where they, where what they do, but mm-hmm. they know where medicines are. Um, so locking cabinets as as inconvenient as it may be to you, um, locking cabinets up uh, and hiding keys. And kids are tricky. They know where things are, so oh, hiding them somewhere they would yes. notice. Um, taking the doors off of bedrooms is another way, uh, to make sure that you have access and sight lines on your child. Um, taking most of the things out of the room, um, also is a good idea. Um, I've had, uh, parents take almost everything out of the kitchen, um, as well in terms of sharper objects and things like that. garages. I'm glad you said that the last two things you mentioned, taking things out of the room, let's just mention, I I know two, the nine-year-old girl, Mackenzie Adams, and the eight-year-old, I forget his name right now, oh my goodness, the the nine-year-old, she used her jump rope. Yeah. And then the eight-year-old, and a lot of the kids who are under the age of 10 or 12, they use their belts. So yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. This is actually one of the first times we've had a discussion about it. So I'm going to try to do, maybe I'll do an episode right after this one about just, you know, making your house suicide proof if it were possible, you know, yeah. but that is great. I have had to take, it's one thing you said about the door, because I've had to take the door out of my oldest, my eldest son's room many, many moons ago, because he would slam the door to prevent his baby brother who was three and aggravating like yeah. a mat from coming into his room and I could not take it. So one day I said, okay, I made him unscrew the door from the hinge and I've done that for a different yeah. reason, but it's doable. Yeah. Yes. It's not the door anymore. Him. Yes. But yeah. I have, uh, I have also taken everything out of one of my kids' rooms, but as a fit of maternal rage. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> 
How was that? I told you all it was going to be fun. So this is the end of part one. We're going to stop here and I'll come back next week with part two of Heather's story. So until then, don't forget to share this podcast, tell someone about it, save a life, right? And I'll see you all back right here next week, Tuesday. All right. Ciao.